I'd like to focus on our reading from Isaiah this morning. The entire chapter of Isaiah 57 is found on page, starts on page 616 in your pew Bible. You might want to follow along with it because it's a remarkable passage, and so I want to remark on it. It's a realistic passage because it points to the realities of suffering. The realities of suffering. The reality of the existence of suffering itself, the reality of how to deal with suffering, and the reality of the uses and purposes of suffering. I want, I want us to hear what I believe God would have us hear this morning. Some of you needed to hear this sermon a long time ago. Some of you need it to hear it today. And the rest of you will need to have heard it in the future. Because suffering is a part of living in this broken world. This particular chapter begins with this harsh reality. Verse 1, we're on page 616 in your pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 1. The righteous man, that's the person who's right with God, the righteous man perishes. That word perish does not mean just to die, but it means to die suddenly, unprepared, quickly, without warning, in a tragic way. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. No one ponders it, nobody thinks about it, nobody tries to seek to understand it. Devout men, these are persons who love God and whom God loves. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. God himself tells us that not even those who are right with God and those who love God are spared the harsh realities of living in a fallen, broken world. Even those who live in the best relationship with God are subject to tragedies. What were so many of us told as we grow up? Remember getting the message that if you're a bad person, bad things will happen to you. If you're a good person, good things will happen to you. But then we grew up and we found out that that's not the way the universe works. Oftentimes good things happen to bad people. And oftentimes bad things happen to good people. But Christians believe that there is a greater purpose to all of this than just a zero-sum game of good things and bad things. I mean, everybody has figured out some things, okay? Pretty much everybody has, has realized that, maybe you can think of some people who, that this applies to, that sometimes the best way that a person can be equipped and strengthened for success is to first fail at something. There are lots of examples of this, but Christians believe there's much, much more to it than even that, but that there could be meaning and purpose found in pain and suffering and failure and hurt. And it's a good thing that meaning and purpose can be found in pain and suffering and failure and hurt because there's an awful lot of it out there. Verse 17 gives us the backdrop here. Because of the iniquity of his, I think here Isaiah is speaking of all human beings. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him, I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. It's the old story of the fall. Because of our willful disobedience, our blind self-centeredness and selfishness, our desires to be like God, to be our own saviors, to worship our false gods, creation is broken. The universe doesn't function the way that God intended it to work. Now there's a lot to say there, but I don't think I really need to hammer this nail home, because we all know that we live in a world marked by brokenness. 
And in fact, in what God seems to be saying in verse 1 is that we should expect bad things to happen to us. But one thing that is fascinating in this passage is that God expresses surprise here that people aren't doing what he expects them to do in the face of suffering and tragedy and pain. And that is to take the suffering to heart and to seek understanding of it, to ponder it. The righteous men perish, the devout men are taken away, and nobody seems to think about this or to seek understanding. God's calling us to think it through until we see a path of understanding what we are experiencing and then to come out on the other side stronger and better for it. So how should we respond in taking pain and suffering to heart and pondering it and seeking understanding? How do we ponder these things? Where do we put our attention? Well, Isaiah tells us some interesting things here. In verse 15, Isaiah introduces God, then God takes over the dialogue. Isaiah says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And then God says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says that although he transcends the universe, that he is high above us, that he inhabits eternity beyond space and time, and that he is holy, morally pure, he will dwell with those who have two characteristics, a contrite heart and a lowly spirit. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That word contrite is kind of a fancy word. If I asked you what that word contrite meant, you'd probably come up with something like, well, it means repenting, or seeking forgiveness, or sorry. But that word in the 14th century, when John Wycliffe translated this passage into English, that word contrite meant crushed, and bruised, and broken. You can look it up on Google if you don't believe me, after the service. <laughs> Wycliffe chooses a word here that means crushed and bruised and broken. In fact, you can go to Wycliffe's uh, Bible on Bible Gateway and look, he adds an explanatory note for contrite, uh, he adds broken. And why did Wycliffe choose this word to translate for this in his translation? Because that word translates exactly the Greek word, the Hebrew word that uh, Wycliffe is trying to translate. It means crushed and bruised and broken. God promises to dwell with those who have a crushed and broken and bruised heart. God promises to dwell with those whose hearts are crushed and bruised. With one other characteristic, a lowly spirit. That word lowly means humble, selfless. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, that word lowly is usually associated with servants. Those who tend to the needs of others not looking out primarily for themselves, not putting themselves at the center of things, but keeping an eye out for other people to serve, putting others above their own interests. A crushed, broken heart and a humble, meek, selfless spirit. Now what is really interesting here is, if you think about it, is that you rarely find these two things together, a crushed heart and a selfless spirit. 
It seems to me, in my experience at least, that suffering tends to make people more selfish, more self-centered, more self-pitying, more self-absorbed, even more self-righteous. That's been my experience at least. Have you heard things like this? I'm sick today. That means I need... Don't you realize I just lost my job? I need this. I need that. If you knew what I had to go through as a child, you would treat me better. There's a phrase from pop psychology, like a lot of these phrases, it's kind of silly, but it does make an awful lot of sense. And that silly little, little phrase is hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. That means people who are hurting often lash out at others. People who are in pain often inflict pain. Abused people are often abusive. And we've all seen this happen, where a crushed and broken and bruised heart makes a person more focused on themselves and less focused on the needs of others. Hurt people hurt people. Or there's another self-centered and self-absorbed response, sure this hurts, but I'm tough and I'll get through this. That's just as selfish and self-centered as being demanding. My self-control is going to get me through this. But a crushed and broken heart matched with a lowly and selfless spirit is much more rare. But God says that he'll dwell with bruised and broken people who have stopped putting themselves at the center of things. A contrite heart and a lowly spirit. We're advised here in the face of suffering to be humble and lowly. Secondly, we're told to examine ourselves and our lives and to find our false gods, our idols. You might say, well, I don't have any idols. I don't, I don't have any false gods. But look, everyone, me included, has to have something to give their lives meaning. Everybody looks to something to give value and purpose and meaning to life. Everybody looks to something to give them their identity, to tell them who they really are. And whatever that thing is, they'll worship it. And anything besides God that is looked to to provide that meaning and that identity in life is an idol. And they may be very fine things in themselves. In fact, a lot of them are. But when they replace God as the meaning giver, they're false gods. Now, you may not make a little brass statue of your career or your family or your education or your friends or your popularity or your social media presence and put it up on your coffee table for everybody to look at and pray to it as you pass by. But you and I often follow false gods. We look to places other than God to provide meaning and purpose and to tell us who we really are. But what does God say here about false gods? In verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. God's being sarcastic. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. When you cry out, God says, your false gods are going to blow away. They'll abandon you in the first breath of the first storm. When you cry out, how do you find out what your false gods are? How do you find out what the idols are in your life? But when you, the storm comes and you cry out, watch what blows away. 
because the stuff that blows away, God says, those are your false gods. The storm comes, you cry out, and the false gods blow away. I'm influenced here by Tim Keller, who wrote a book on idolatry. And um, I believe it's in this book, he mentions this, I I remember the the event anyway. Um, he, He was thinking about idols and false gods and these kinds of things, and he had to go in for surgery, pretty serious surgery. And so he's there in the hospital room, and his family, in that case it was his wife and his children, and, and some of his fellow pastors from, from the church he was at uh, came to see, see him, and he had all kinds of notes and emails from people saying, we're with you, we're here for you. And then the orderly came and started wheeling him down the hallway to the operating room, and he thought to himself, all those people who said they were with me, where'd they go? They aren't here. And out of that kind of funny observation, you know, they all said they're going to be with me, but they're not here. I mean, they care about me. I know they love me, but they're all back there, and I'm heading off by myself. As he was thinking about this, he thought about all that's taken away from us when we go through surgery. Because when you're wheeled down the hallway, you're all alone. And all the false gods blow away behind you. Self-control. You don't have any self-control in surgery. You can't rely on that. Your career? What good is that going to do you in surgery? If you're the best heart surgeon in the world, and you're going to be on the operating table having your heart operated on, what good does that do you? It doesn't mean a thing. Your athletic ability and your health? Well, that's why you're in the operating room. Your good looks? Nobody looks hot in a hospital gown. (laughs) Your education, your friends, your family, your marriage, your children, your church, your social media presence, even your brain and your intelligence is going to be taken away from you because you're going to clap the anesthetic onto your face and knock you out. You're going to be completely helpless and alone, and the false gods will all abandon us. But the only God who can be there with you as they wheel you down the hallway is the one true God. That's the God who can comfort you. That's the God you can talk to. But the false gods abandon us. And surgery is just a way of picturing this. But this happens in grief. When we grieve the loss of a loved one, why does all this other stuff matter? Or when we fail at something that we really wanted, that accomplished, that was really important to us, and it didn't work out for us, why does all the other stuff matter? When we're really disappointed, not just a little disappointed, but really disappointed in somebody, what's all that other stuff matter? None of these things sweep in to rescue us. The false gods abandon us for a while. But then those false gods return. Because one thing about false gods is that they never forgive. Only the true God can forgive. False gods never forgive. False gods only punish. If your false god is your career, and something goes wrong in your career, whether it's your fault or not, and we're not talking about sin here or anything, but if, if, you, if you have a career plan and you're devoted to that and it just doesn't work out, whether it's your fault or not or whatever, but you fail at it, that god of career will torment you forever over. If your false god is your moral character, little idol you have up on your fireplace mantle is, I'm a good person. And you sin greatly, and we all have. And you experience moral failure, that false god of moral character will 
punish you with guilt. But the true God forgives and comforts us. In fact, that's what God says in verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. The fruit of the lips, that's a poetic way of saying what the author of the book of Hebrews, well, listen to what the author of the book of Hebrews says. Through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. It's a poetic way of describing praise. God says, I will comfort him and he will praise me. And then this interesting line, peace, peace to the far and to the near. That brings us to our New Testament reading this morning from the epistle to the Ephesians. And Paul is writing here about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Don't be distracted by that, by that discussion. Pay attention to the core of what um, Paul is saying here. But now in Christ Jesus, this is in the middle of the, the passage assigned for today. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Christ himself is our peace. And Paul goes on to write, not only is Christ himself our peace, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. In Isaiah, God says, I will preach peace, peace to the far and to the near. And Paul says, Jesus came, was our peace, and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. I think the author here has in mind this passage from Isaiah. Maybe it's a coincidence. Well, if it is, here's another coincidence. That Hebrew word translated contrite, whose root meaning means crushed and bruised and broken. Isaiah uses that Hebrew word one other time, just four chapters earlier in Isaiah 53. It's on page 614 in your pew Bible. If you're still there, you can just flip back one and turn the page and follow along. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he, Isaiah is prophesying the death of Jesus the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. You may have memorized this from the King James Version, in which uses the word bruised. He was bruised for our iniquities, crushed and bruised. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. When Jesus was crushed, he was abandoned by God. But because Jesus was crushed, God will never abandon us. When the false gods have all blown away, and you're left with only a crushed heart and a lowly spirit, and you turn to Jesus, Jesus whom you've believed in and trusted in for your salvation and worshipped and praised before. But when you turn to Jesus with a crushed heart and a lowly spirit, then you learn that you need Jesus. And then it's happened more times than I know of. It's happened in my life and it's happened in many people's lives. Something amazing happens. You're crushed. You turn to Jesus. You learn that you need Jesus. Then something amazing happens. You hit the bottom. You keep going. You're crushed and broken and bruised. But then things usually start to get better. That's the way the world kind of works. 
then things usually start to get better and good things come back into your life. But you know what? Those good things don't have the power over you they had before. You don't worship them like you did before. They aren't the source of the meaning in your life anymore. They aren't the source of your identity. These things are good and nice and appreciated, but if you keep your heart straight, they never again become false gods. Well, you might say, well, this all sounds great in theory. But what do I do? How does that really help me today to deal with difficult times that I've been through or are going through or will go through in the future? Well, here's what you do. When you go through tough times, when your heart is bruised and crushed and broken, be very careful with it because you have a big decision to make. You have a huge call on your life and you need to know how to respond. Because your response to your suffering will make you either more self-centered or less self-centered. More self-absorbed or less self-absorbed. You've all heard that little phrase, right? All things work together for good. Doesn't that sound nice? All things work together for good. I got an idea. I'm going to make a refrigerator magnet and put those words on it and put butterflies and flowers. I'm going to sell a hundred gazillion of them down at the bookstore and I'm going to make a lot of money. All things work together for good. Well, try telling that some with a child in the hospital or watching a family member go through a debilitating illness and all those things. Let's look at the actual text here because that little bumper sticker thing actually is really important. I'd like you to take a look with me, if you would, at Romans chapter 8. It's on page 944 in your pew Bible. I'll be reading it, you can follow along, but I'd like you to see what I'm saying. Page 944 in your pew Bible, Romans chapter 8. Beginning at verse 18. Paul sets the stage for the two paragraphs that follow. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed to us, you can translate that second to is in us, to us and in us at the same time. So a couple of things here. Paul is directly talking about suffering here. We're not taking anything out of the context. <coughs> Excuse me. And he promises that there's going to be a glory that's to be revealed in us. And now go down to verse 28 where we find this little phrase. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Some people have the idea that what this means is that at the end of life, you take all the good stuff, you take all the bad stuff, you put it in a blender, you put the top on the blender, you hit the button a couple of times, and then you pour out the milkshake and you taste it. Oh, they all mixed together and became good. That's not it at all. Listen, we know that for those who love God, that's important. Not all things for everybody. For those who are called according to his, work together for, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, that's, what's that mean? Different theological traditions take all kinds of different routes to all work up in the same place. And that is, if you want to be called, you're called. There are ways to work out this verse and that object and this idea and this concept 
They all come to this common point, if you want to be called, you're called. For those who are called according to his purpose, do you want to be called according to God's purpose? What is that purpose? Paul is going to tell us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. All things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is the glory that's to be revealed to us and in us? Our glory is our destination that's already been picked out for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, to be more like Jesus. When pain and disappointment and suffering come, when our hearts are broken, take a lowly spirit, take a humble spirit. If you don't have one, pray for one. Humble me, Father, give me a lowly spirit. Show me my false gods, remove them from my life, but use this painful experience to make me more like Jesus. Let me come out of this more like Jesus, more generous, more compassionate, more gentle, more kind, more loving, more understanding, more self-sacrificing, more like Jesus. And when you follow this path, something important happens. You don't end up as a hurt person who hurts people. You end up as a hurt person who heals people. Your pain and disappointment and hurt will make you more like Jesus. And out of your own woundedness and brokenness, and yes, ultimately healing, you'll be the face of Jesus to a lost and pained and hurting world. Lord Jesus, mold us into your image. Bring us to that glory we are promised will be revealed to us. Use the difficulties and troubles and pains of our lives to make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.